where we are right here standing in the present, but we have a hand toward the past and a hand toward the future. So makes a cruciform um, as we think about time, which is a helpful visual, I'd say. A little more about anamnesis. Remember, we're holding both of these at the same time. Anamnesis is memory through ritual process. So this is not a mental exercise of remembering. Um, this is not sitting still by ourselves and just thinking about things. It's doing something together. It's an active sort of remembering. When we come together, we do what Jesus did. That's what we do, particularly when we gather around the table for Eucharist. We are acting this out, um, but not in a theatrical sense, um, in a sense of living what Jesus lived um, and participating in that. You'll notice if you pay really close attention to Christian hymns, that oftentimes we're using present tense language to talk about things that we think of as happening in the past. So Christmas hymns offer us a really good example of that. Jesus Christ is born today. Silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright. O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. These are present tense verbs to describe an event that we know happened in the past, but is simultaneously happening again each time we celebrate Christmas. So again, there's that sort of tension of our earthly time with liturgical time. Each time we cycle back through the liturgical year, we are celebrating these events as if they are happening right here in front of us. So our hymnody points to that for us if you pay special attention uh, to the use of verbs. This is something that might be really annoying to folks who are very into grammar, and um, especially when we jump back and forth between past tense and present tense and sometimes future tense in the course of a song or a prayer. Uh, but it points to something really theologically beautiful um, if we notice those subtle details. A little bit more about prolepsis, the, the friend of anamnesis. So that quite literally means to take beforehand. And it's a kind of anticipation, but with a little more depth, perhaps. Um, it's bringing God's future into our present. So when we talk about resurrection, that's part of what we're talking about. Um, particularly when we talk about the resurrection that all of us experience, will experience, eternal life that we will experience. Um, there, this is a book that I read in seminary. It's not a book that I think anyone outside of a seminary context would pick up and decide to read, but it is quite interesting. Um, calendar, Christ time for the church. So it goes through um, the seasons of the church year, but also talks about um, liturgical time. And one of the things that's named here about resurrection is that resurrection is the entrance point into the present of that future of God that is set to be fully revealed. I'll say that again because it's a rather confusing sentence even when you see it on paper. Resurrection is the entrance into the present of that future of God that is set to be fully revealed. 
So when we talk about resurrection, when we pray for our own resurrection, when we celebrate Jesus' resurrection, we are stepping into a future reality that we have faith will come in some form at some time that is yet to be determined. Um, and because God is, is bigger than our imagination, we can understand that resurrection is already happening even if it isn't happening to us. So we're living into a reality that is ongoing and in the future and in the case of Jesus is in the past. So we're holding all of these pieces together, which becomes a rather difficult mental exercise. Um, but again, that's why these are things that we live into through ritual. If we try to only do this with our rational minds, it gets rather confusing um, to hold all of these things together. But when we do liturgy together, we just step into it. Um, and that's, that's the gift of what we get to do together. As Christians, we live in an already and not yet frame of time. So there are many things that are, as, as I named, God is already doing. And there is an anticipation that we have of our own experience in that. We live in a space that is in between. Um, we live in that, mes that little sliver of present that holds on to the past and looks to the future. We live in a space of both and, where we are here and we're in the past and we're in the future. We are here physically and yet um, we are in contact with the global church as we pray together. Christianity is full of both ands. Two things that seem to be in contradiction can be true. And oftentimes it's more than two things that we're holding all together. And liturgy helps us to do that. We celebrate Jesus's birth, his ministry, death, and resurrection as we await for ourselves the kingdom of God. That kingdom is already in place and is in the future at the same time. So that's what we're doing in liturgy, is trying to step into that frame of time that is different than the one that happens when I just look at my watch or look at the calendar to determine where I am um, in the course of the year or the day. Liturgy allows us to be in that relationship um, and allows us, by stepping into a different experience of time, to be in relationship with our eternal God. So now we'll look at the course of a week liturgically, um, and then we'll go into the full year. But I'm curious, just from that first bit, about what it is to step into liturgical time, what piques your interest? What about that um, feels resonant or confusing, um, maybe brings up some questions? What are your reactions to that? Yeah, Pickle. Yeah. Yeah, we, we can be in conversation with this group. <laughs> good, good. Um, so in case folks couldn't hear, um, being a pickle is, has knowledge of the liturgical year um, and the calendar that we live into and follow. Um, and then there's, but there's still something about um, like why do we do this? That thinking about um, liturgical or Christian time can be helpful. <laughs> 
Right, let's look at the course of a week. So as we all know, when we look at the story of creation, God got to the seventh day, looked around at all that God has, had made and said it was good, and then took a nap, um, took a day of rest. I'm, I'm a person who loves naps, so um, I like to think of God taking a little, a little nap. The seventh day um, is the Sabbath. Um, Sabbath and se- the seventh um, translate pretty closely together. There, are, there were writers in the second and third uh, century who liked to talk about the seventh day and, and moving that actually to be the first day of the week so that it is primary, of course, still on that seven-day cycle. But if we think about that Sabbath day as the first day of the week, um, it means we're putting the first of our time towards God in the same way that we offer a first fruits offering um, or a tithe. So using the frame of the first day, then these second and third century writers would also talk about the eighth day of the week. Again, this is where when we try to do things simply as a mental exercise, it gets really convoluted. But if we think about the first day of the week and move through the week to the eighth day, of course, in our calendar, we're coming back around to the same thing. Seven is a number of completion, so it makes sense that we have seven days of the week, that the earth was made in seven days. So when we step into that eighth day, which is still the first day um, in its own way, that brings us into what is next. So again, we're holding on to the past and the present at the same time. Because that's sort of a complicated way of speaking about time, that's fallen out of practice. People don't really talk about the eighth day of the week. Um, In in this book, it's recommended that maybe we start that again. I'm not sure how that's going to catch on. Um, But just another way of thinking about the relationship with time through the course of the week. Sunday is also often referred to as the Lord's Day. It's a day that's set aside. And it's a weekly occasion for us to feast with Christ and with one another. And it comes without fail, whether we are ready or not, which um, is in some ways simply the nature of the calendar and in some ways um, I think is a deeply theological statement that no matter what is happening in our life, um, no matter what is going on in the world, Sunday comes. Um, This feast comes, whether we are here in body or in spirit, Sunday will keep on coming back. The Lord's day will always return to us. Sunday is my favorite day of the week. Um, I love worship. That is probably no surprise. I love being here. I love the care and preparation um, of doing worship and doing liturgy together. I love being with this community um, and seeing the ways that we are all transformed by praying together, by our ritual lives together. And there are still moments that I get the Saturday scaries, which for most people are the Sunday scaries as you look ahead to Monday. Um, But my work week starts on Sunday. So there are times that on Saturday morning, I find myself not at all ready for Sunday. um, And it still comes. Um, And I'm grateful. There are plenty of weeks where I could use one more day to sleep in, one more day without an alarm. but. Sunday, I wake up early and um, I get here and I'm always um, 
delighted by the sort of peace that I experience the moment that I step into this day. So that's sort of, that's my personal experience of, of the way that um, the cycle of the week just wraps us into what God is doing. I'm going to pass out um, a diagram of the year uh, that we can all look at together. Um, I love a color code, um, and luckily a liturgical calendar comes with colors. Uh, so this is a wheel that helps us just to visualize it. I'm also a visual person, which makes sense with my color coding. Um, okay. There you go, Sarah. I'll name that the reason we're talking about the liturgical year today is that next Sunday, the first Sunday of Advent, is the first Sunday of the year. So if you look at the top of this circle, you'll see December 3rd of 23 is the start of our year. I remember when I was young, I had a religion teacher named Miss Barnes, um, and she would always come in with um, a two-sided felt board on a cart, and on one side she would tell us Bible stories, and on the other side she had a felt liturgical calendar um, that probably plenty of us have seen in a Sunday school in some form or another, that had little blocks for each of the weeks and a felt arrow that one of us lucky five-year-olds would get to move to point to the week um, that we were in at the time. So I have really fond memories of trying to learn the liturgical calendar even as a really um, young child. Of course, you'll notice that this is a big circle um, so just as we talk about the week, and we talk about the first day and the eighth day coming back around, it's just the same with our year, that we start um, with Advent, we start with a season of anticipation, of preparation, of looking to what is ahead, um, and awaiting Christ. We move all the way through the year again, and then step back into another period of preparation and anticipation. So that cycle, again, wraps us up in what God is doing and wraps us up in a time that is beyond uh, what we get to live into each day. Um, so as you'll see um, on this page, um, we start with Advent, and I'll name a little bit about the liturgical colors just as we go. So here we use blue for Advent. Some churches use purple. Um, some of that is the piety of a particular church. Some of that is purely practical. A lot of churches can't afford to have an extra set of vestments that you only get to use for four Sundays. You'll also notice that pink week right in the middle, um, one of my favorite days of the year, um, mostly because I love pink, but also it's a day of great joy. That's Gaudete Sunday. Um, that means rejoice. Um, and that's normally a Sunday where we read something that has to do with Mary and the joy that she experienced in um, learning that she was carrying the Son of God. So the blue uh, refers to royalty um, primarily, um, and then the pink is a color of great joy. Then we move into Christmas, which is gold or white, depending on what a church has, um, which 
is um, sort of our, our most special um, vestments um, and altar hangings. Those are the things that indicate to us this is a feast that is a big deal. Um, it tells us um, of great celebration. This is what we use during Christmas and Easter. Uh, we generally use it for funerals as well as a reminder of the joy of resurrection. I'll remind you, I know you have heard this before, um, Christmas is 12 days, not one day in the church. Uh, so the, the song of the 12 days of Christmas actually points to what we do as Christians. We get to celebrate uh, for 12 days. Um, and then we hear of Epiphany when uh, the wise men came to Jesus with gifts um, and did not return to Herod to tell of Jesus's whereabouts. Epiphany is on January 6th each year, and we celebrate it um, normally that following Sunday. Um, I joke often, but also mean it, that I think there is something that is lost for us um, in a culture where we don't have services um, for all of those feasts, regardless of what day they occur on. I think it would be great um, if we could gather on Epiphany and celebrate it on the day of. But we use the Sunday. We'll, we'll gather together on the time that we already plan to be here and celebrate it then as well. Um, the Sunday after Epiphany is also when we celebrate Jesus's baptism. We move into the season after Epiphany, which is ordinary time. Um, it's always represented by green. Some people refer to that as a time of growing, um, a reminder that ordinary time is a time of growth and flourishing and of expanding of our faith, even if there's not something like special on the calendar. Each Sunday we come together and feast no matter what, um, and our lives between those Sundays allow us an opportunity for growth as well. We shift into Lent after Ash Wednesday, this year falling on Valentine's Day. What a great way to celebrate. Um, and that is a season of that's normally with purple. Um, here we use um, unbleached linen, which is also a practice for many uh, churches in place of the purple. Um, and this points us to repentance and solemnity. Um, Lent is a season where we are reminded of our mortality, where we um, repent of those sins that have captured our hearts in many ways. Um, and the unbleached linen gives us that same sort of um, feeling. And I think in some ways reminds us of, um, of the fact that we are of the earth in a particular way. There's something about seeing a natural fiber uh, that is in its natural color that reminds us that we are from dust and to dust we shall return. So I really actually love that that's part of our practice here. Holy Week um, is red. That starts with Palm Sunday when we uh, remember Jesus's passion. We bring uh, Willie the donkey through. We have a wonderful procession. Um, and then we move into the rest of Holy Week. Uh, some churches celebrate uh, Eucharist each day of Holy Week. That, that, that's a normal part of their practice. Um, but most places will have the Monday Thursday service, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, um, perhaps a vigil um, where we remember Jesus' last days um, and his time in the tomb. It's important that we remember 
that time in the tomb, um, it's easy to want to skip to Easter, but part of the rhythm of the liturgical year is that we have those moments that are down, um, where we are reminded of death, we are reminded of pruning. Uh, those are important parts of our faith, and I think allow us to experience those deep joys um, even more vibrantly. So then we get into the 50 days of Easter. Again, Easter is not one day. It's not just the Sunday that we gather together. And uh, you might have an Easter basket that uh, you receive or give um, to someone that you love. Um, but we get 50 whole days, which also makes it longer than Lent, time of great celebration. We have Pentecost, which is often referred to as the birthday of the church. Um, and that's also part of what led to naming Sunday as the first day of the week rather than the seventh, um, talking about the first day of the church, of, um, of the Christian church. Again, getting sort of into uh, liturgical theology that is beyond what most of us are um, need or are interested in. But we have a day, great day of celebration. This year we can anticipate uh, Bishop, presiding Bishop Michael Curry being with us for Pentecost. Then we move into a long, long period of ordinary time. Um, that's where we are right now. Um, ordinary time leading up to Advent always ends with Christ the King Sunday or Majesty of Christ. Um, that's what we are observing today. So it just brings us right back around to Advent. Um, it's circular, it's ever moving, it's continuous. Um, we keep living into those seasons and ebbs and flows um, of what God is doing. What are your questions and comments on, on any of that, on the week or the year? I imagine that much of this is a, a reminder to us. Um, we see it happening um, each year, and, and some of us know plenty about this um, from our own positions in the church um, and our own interest in what we're doing. But I find it helpful at times to name explicitly what it is that we are doing over the course of time, because it, often if you live into something without it being talked about explicitly, uh, we don't realize what it is that we're up to, um, and I think that is something that we as the Episcopal Church could improve on, is explaining what it is that we are doing, um, rather than assuming that there is knowledge of it. Um, so that's part of my hope, is that this is a reminder. John has two thoughts. Well, one's, one is just to share, when you're talking about the eight days of the week, it's the reason the font is eight-sided. So if you look at the font, mm -hmm. Yeah. The font is eight-sided, um, so a way that we see, we can visualize that first day and eighth day. And then I love this way of thinking about time, because otherwise the church here looks so unbalanced. If you just look at it, right, we do, we do Christmas through the resurrection in mm -hmm. about three and a half months, and then we're just fooling around on it. think about time It makes a lot Yeah, yeah. Um, in case folks couldn't hear, John was saying, if 
the year looks sort of imbalanced when we um, think about how quickly we go from Jesus's birth to death and resurrection. And then we have a lot of the year um, where we're in just normal, ordinary um, time, where we of course recognize Jesus's life and ministry, but in a different way. Um, so thinking of it cyclically and, and looking at different reasons that we observe it that way, I think helps us get a bigger picture. Any other thoughts on that? Things that you're curious about when you look at this? Why is March 10th in pink? Another pink Sunday. Um, well, first of all, I'm going to name that when I made this, I forgot to put the pink Sundays on it, which um, is just feels wrong for me in particular. And luckily we have a liturgy or a worship team um, that I asked to look at this and was reminded, of course, we need our pink Sundays. So we have another um, pink Sunday during Lent, which is, a, it's another day of great joy, sort of a break in that season of repentance and solemnity. Um, I don't know the full history of how we ended up um, with that extra uh, Sunday in there, Laetare Sunday, um, but it's a, a pause for joy, um, a pause for feasting. Um, each Sunday of Lent is still a feast, so that's why when you go through and count the days of Lent on a calendar, it adds up to more than 40, but we talk about the 40 days of Lent. Um, each Sunday is a feast, so those count differently. Um, we, we break for a feast every week, but that um, pink Sunday, uh, Laetare Sunday, is is a particular day of joy. Um, and Laetare, just like Gaudete, translates to rejoice. It's not observed by, well, it's not observed with vestments and such by all churches. It, it exists in the year whether we dress differently or not. But again, for practical reasons for many churches, uh, for most churches, it does not make sense to have pink vestments that you only get to wear two times a year. Technically, the liturgical color is rose, just so you know. Um, but most people don't have rose-colored vestments. Good question. I'll name briefly about the lectionary. Again, this may be a reminder, but one of the most frequent questions that I get as a priest um, is how I decide what I'm going to preach on. I'm really grateful to be in a tradition that uses a lectionary, that we use the Revised Common Lectionary, so I don't have to think to myself, okay, here's the topic that I want to preach on. Let me find the scripture that goes with it. That's also brief enough for the context of a Sunday morning um, that we can all um, read together and sort of understand more or less what's happening. Um, I, I don't have to do that work. Uh, the lectionary presents scripture to us for each Sunday. It goes in a three-year cycle um, and allows us to hear much of the Bible proclaimed aloud in church. Um, each Sunday has a lesson, a psalm, an epistle, and a gospel passage appointed for um, each of those Sundays, which means we get to hear a lot of Bible. Um, folks often joke that Episcopalians don't know their Bible, 
But we hear a lot of scripture and varied scripture, including those parts that we might like to ignore in the context of our Sunday morning worship. Our Book of Common Prayer is also mostly Bible. Um, there, there are folks who have done annotated versions of the Book of Common Prayer that remind us of where those passages are coming from. Um, so we, we hear a lot of scripture. Um, so you do know your Bible. You've heard a lot of it simply by being here. That also means it helps um, a lot of us out uh, following the Revised Common Lectionary. Most mainline Protestants use a lectionary of some kind. Um, the Catholic Church has its own lectionary. Um, and much of the Revised Common Lectionary comes from that. Uh, but it means that our musicians, our any liturgical planners, they can look ahead pretty far without having to do that work of trying to assign things ourselves. There's committees that have already sat down and spent a tremendous amount of time um, mapping out what a year can look like. So we can all look ahead pretty easily and be sharing from the same information. It also means that a preacher can look at the calendar and say, okay, there's my scripture passages for a Sunday that I know I'll be um, proclaiming something, um, and I can read those and see where the Spirit leads me in that, which again sometimes means we end up with a passage that we might not want to have wanted to uh, work with, but that's, that's what the lectionary has offered us. That's what the calendar has offered us. Uh, so last week was one of those. Um, it's hard to read a gospel passage that ends with weeping and gnashing of teeth and then proclaim, this is good news that God is offering us. Uh, so that's one we might have skipped otherwise, but the lectionary said, hey, this is important for us to read. So that's what we do in our three-year cycle. Uh, the last thing I'll name is that we have uh, feast days for lots and lots of saints that we observe during the year. There are calendars that you can um, look at that have a saint for almost every day of the year. Um, some folks find that a helpful way to ground their, their practice of faith and reading of scripture, to look at those saint days. Um, again, there's a lectionary for those um, with readings assigned. There's a collect for each of those saints. Um, so you can pray with the saints during the course of the year as well, um, if that's ever of interest to you. That's what I have. Um, I'm glad to hear anything that comes up for you um, or questions of how you've seen this maybe in action and it hasn't made sense um, or things that really resonate too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. So the question is, you know, it, our lectionary still fragments scripture up, and there are inherently pieces that we miss. Um, and are those important? Yes. Uh, the simple answer is yes. I still think it's important for us to get out an actual Bible and look at the fullness of scripture. Um, just what we hear in church doesn't 
necessarily give us a full picture. There are full books that are not represented um, in the lectionary, uh, partially because there are some uh, books of the Bible that you need a lot more context than what can happen in a brief reading. So I think it's important that we still get out that primary source um, and, and read things in context. Scripture taken out of context often doesn't work very well. Um, and there are stories that we uh, miss out on um, if we don't look to the fullness of Scripture. And I, I do think they're important. Um, in particular, there's um, a lot of women's stories that are left out of the lectionary. Um, that's a bigger conversation, but that's part of why St. Columba's um, is using Dr. Will Gaffney's uh, Year W, the Womanist Lectionary, because she's really intentional about finding passages that are not otherwise represented um, and putting them into a lectionary where we will gain exposure to those. Um, how does that work? We are using it seasonally. Some churches decide they're going to use it for a whole year. Um, there are some churches who have decided they are going to um, exclusively use her work um, in place of the Revised Common Lectionary. You need permission from a bishop to do that, um, of course. Uh, but we will use it during the season after Epiphany, um, and we will, rather than using uh, year B for those six weeks or, or something like that, um, we'll use that lectionary instead um, just to test it out and see how it sounds to us. Uh, so I think from what I have heard from people who are uh, trying to use that lectionary, they use it for a season um, so that we can hear how maybe it's different or similar to what we're hearing otherwise. Um, but the, I will say um, a plug for the books that Dr. Will Gaffney has done on those lectionaries, they make really great Bible study guides too, whether you're using them in the context of worship um, or for your own edification. You have a question? I might not be on. Thank you. Hmm. How do you go about doing that? Yeah, a, that's a great question, um, especially uh, in light of where we are as uh, a world right now. What do you do when, when something happens in our national life, in our global life, that you can't set aside? You, you can't ignore it. You need to talk about it. How do you do that in the context of the lectionary? Sometimes the spirit moves and you've prepared a sermon that you can alter and respond to what is, is happening in the world. Sometimes you need to completely trash your sermon at 5 a.m. on Sunday morning and you need to start over. And maybe something in the scripture passage appointed will guide you on that. And sometimes you just have to say, we're setting the lectionary aside and we need to just talk about this, and we need to talk about where God is in it without trying to 
make it work with our gospel for the day or draw a connection to our psalm, sometimes it just doesn't work. And normally the bulletin's prepared, um, so we will probably still read those passages. But sometimes you'll come to church and you'll hear a sermon that maybe just barely touches on the readings that are assigned for the day because there's something else that we need to talk about. Um, so that, that still happens. The, the communal life that we live together and our ability to respond to it and see where God is in it takes precedent um, in many situations over what we've planned. Um, I think often we can weave them together and it's great when we can, um, but sometimes we just have to pause and say, this is really bad. Let's talk about it. So it's, that's a great question. Thank you. Any lingering thoughts? Thanks for being here. You can take home your liturgical calendar and put it on your fridge. Follow along. Um, maybe even put a little arrow on there for yourself so you can do like I did at five years old and keep your arrow moving around through the year. Thank you all.